Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, my name is David Burton. I'm Senior Fellow in Economic Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. And before I forget, I'd like to ask everyone to silence their phones so that we don't have a phone ringing in the middle of the, of the event. Um, this is the 10th in a series, a speaker series called Free Markets, the Ethical Economic Choice. Uh, the events can be watched at uh, heritage.org forward slash free markets or on the Heritage Foundation's YouTube channel. Uh, let me tell you about the next two events. On Friday, January 25th, you'll have the misfortune of hearing me make a presentation entitled Economic Equality is Unjust. Uh, on Monday, February 11th, Dr. Edward Fesser who is a professor of philosophy at Pasadena City College, will make a presentation called Socialism Versus the Family. Professor Fezzer uh, is, uh, writes in the natural law tradition, uh, consonant with, the Catholic, uh, with Catholic social teaching, but he's deeply informed by both Friedrich Hayek and Robert Nozick. Our speaker today is Professor Randy Barnett, who is Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Legal Theory at Georgetown University. His topic is the Constitution and Economic Freedom. He is a stalwart defender of economic liberty and individual liberty and is the most, or among the most erudite legal scholars in the country working within the classical liberal tradition. Professor Barnett's publications include 12 books, more than 100 articles, and numerous op-eds. His books include Restoring the Lost Constitution, The Presumption of Liberty, The Structure of Liberty, Justice, and the Rule of Law, A Republican Constitution, Securing the Liberty and Sovereignty of We the People. These are highly readable books and thoughtful uh, and scholarly as well. I recommend them all highly. Professor Barnett began his career as a prosecutor for Cook County, Illinois. He spent the 1981-82 academic year as a research fellow at the University of Chicago. Uh, he then began his academic career as an assistant professor of law at Chicago Kent College of Law. In 1993, he moved to Boston University as a professor of law, a full professor of law in the Boston University School of Law. In 2006, he moved to Georgetown University, where he is still teaching law today. He has a BA from Northwestern and a JD from Harvard Law. 
We'll have time for audience questions after his presentation. Please join me in welcoming Randy Barnett. Thanks for the invitation to be here today. Thanks for that introduction. When you started to say erudite, I was so worried. I was kind of worried that arrogant was going to come out. Um, but uh, no, erudite is fine. That's that's better than arrogant. You haven't been reading my student evaluations lately. Um, anyway, it's great to talk. Come here to talk about uh, economic liberty. My my job here today is to defend the proposition that the Constitution of the United States protects economic liberty. Now, normally. Uh, making an originalist argument of any kind in a 20 to 30 minute talk is next to impossible because originalist arguments are based on evidence and you can't really marshal the kinds of evidence necessary to make out such a case in such a short period of time, much less make it engaging. Uh, but it turns out that in this case, it's all, not all that difficult. Um, as I'm going to show you, uh, the evidence that the original meaning of the Constitution did protect economic liberty, it does protect economic liberty, is overwhelming. Uh, but I better start off, I think, but to, uh, by defining what I mean by economic liberty, uh, and then you'll see what I mean. So I define economic liberty as the right to acquire, use, and possess private property and the right to enter into private contracts of one's choosing. If these rights are protected by the Constitution, then we can conclude that the Constitution does protect economic liberty. So as I've just said, I think that the evidence that the Constitution protects the rights of private property and contract is overwhelming. But to say that the Constitution protects the right of property and contract is not to say exactly how these rights are to be protected. I'm going to return to that important topic after I discuss the clauses of the Constitution that do protect economic liberty. Let me by begin by considering the constitutional protection afforded, by, afforded economic liberty at the national level. Most obviously, the right of private property is protected by a federal power of eminent domain, um, from, from, from the federal power of eminent domain by the enumerated right to just compensation and by limiting takings to those for public use, as provided by the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment. But I'm not going to spend very much time on the takings clause. On the one hand, there is good originalist evidence that the federal government's eminent domain power was limited to its control of the territories that the federal government was not thought to possess a power to take private property for public use within an existing state. But on the other hand, there is also originalist evidence to suggest that the takings clause applied to only to physical takings and not to so-called regulatory takings. But even if it did apply to regulatory takings, most run-of-the-mill regulations of economic liberty are not extreme enough to qualify as a regulatory taking. So I'm going to set aside the takings clause and move on to other provisions. The because the enumeration in the Constitution of a right of just compensation should not be construed to deny or disparage other economic liberties that were retained by the people. Of course, I'm now echoing the words of the Ninth Amendment, which reads, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. But what were these other rights retained by the people? The evidence shows that this was a reference to individual natural rights, which include the rights we today would characterize as economic. Consider an amendment crafted by Roger Sherman, Representative Roger Sherman of Connecticut, who served with James Madison on the House Select Committee to draft what became the Bill of Rights. Sherman's second amendment began as follows, quote, 
The people have certain natural rights which are retained by them when they enter into society. In this passage, Sherman uses all the terminology eventually employed in the Ninth Amendment. The people, rights, retained, and the rights retained by the people are then explicitly characterized as natural rights. His proposal then ends, ends, of these rights, therefore, they shall not be deprived by the government of the United States. But what was meant by the term natural rights? The middle of Sherman's draft provides some examples. Quote, such are the rights of conscience in matters of religion, of acquiring property, and of pursuing happiness and safety, of speaking, writing, and publishing their sentiments with decency and freedom, of peaceably assembling to consult their common good, and of applying to government by petition or remonstrance for redress of grievances. Notice that the protection of property is at the heart of this list. Sherman's rendition of natural rights was entirely commonplace. Indeed, it employed the canonical formulation of natural rights that was originally drafted by George Mason in May of 1776 for the Virginia Declaration of Rights. Mason's draft read as follows, quote, that all men are born equally free and independent and have certain inherent natural rights of which they cannot, by any compact, deprive or divest their posterity, among which are the enjoyment of life and liberty, with the means of acquiring and possessing property, and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. When Thomas Jefferson was writing the Declaration of Independence, he had Mason's draft before, and Mason's draft had only been drafted about a month or so before. But it was Mason's formulation, not Jefferson's, that became canonical. Mason's formulation was incorporated into the constitutions of Virginia, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and Vermont. Here's what Massachusetts said. All men are born free and equal and have certain natural, essential, and inalienable rights, among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties, that of acquiring and possessing and protecting property, in fine, that of seeking and obtaining their happiness and safety. New Hampshire, all men have certain natural, essential, and inherent rights, among which are the enjoying and defending life and liberty, acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and in a word, of seeking and obtaining happiness. Pennsylvania, that all men are born equally free and independent, have certain natural, essential, and inalienable rights, among which are the enjoying and defending of life and liberty, acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Vermont, that all men are born equally free and independent and have certain natural, inherent, and inalienable rights, among which are enjoying and defending life and liberty, acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Eleven years later, when it came time to ratify the Constitution, Virginia proposed the same language be added to the Constitution by amendment to bind the federal government. Here's the, Virginia's proposal. Quote, that there are certain natural rights of which men, when they form a social compact, cannot deprive or divest their posterity, among which are the enjoyment of life and liberty and the means of acquiring, possessing, and protecting property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Finally, when he proposed his amendments to the Constitution, James Madison assumed that they would be inserted into, te into the text, not added to the end as a list. In other words, he assumed that amending the Constitution meant literally revising the Constitution. Here is the passage he proposed be added to the preamble of the Constitution, quote, that government is instituted and ought to be exercised for the benefit of the people, which consists in the enjoyment of life and liberty, with the right of acquiring and using property, 
and generally of pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. All these provisions share in common the affirmation that the natural, inherent, and inalienable rights retained by the people include the right to acquire, possess, and protect property, and the right to pursue happiness and safety. That they were thought to be judicially enforceable in some way is evidenced by the fact that in 1781, the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts relied on this language in its state constitution, which I already read you, to hold that slavery was unconstitutional in Massachusetts. As explained by Chief Justice William Cushing, quote, whatever sentiments have formally prevailed, a different idea has taken place within the people of America, more favorable to the natural rights of mankind and to that natural innate desire of liberty, which heaven, without regard to color, complexion, or shape of noses or features, has inspired all the human race. Upon this ground, our constitution of government, by which the people of this commonwealth have solemnly bound themselves, sets out with declaring that all men are born free and equal, and that every subject is entitled to liberty and to have it guarded by the laws as well as life and property, and in short is totally repugnant to the idea of slavery, to, I'm sorry, to the idea of being born slaves. This being the case, I think the idea of slavery is inconsistent with our own conduct and constitution, and there can be no such thing as perpetual servitude of a rational creature unless his liberty is forfeited by some criminal conduct or given up by personal consent or contract. Now today, we would characterize the right to acquire, use, and possess property as economic, while characterizing the right to pursue happiness and safety as personal. But all these provisions I read show that the distinction between economic and personal liberty is anachronistic as applied to the founding when these unenumerated natural rights were considered inextricably intertwined. The Constitution gives the federal government a set of enumerated powers, among which is the power to regulate commerce among the several states. It also empowers it to make all laws which shall be necessary or proper, necessary and proper, for carrying into execution its commerce power. A law that denied or disparaged the retained right to acquire, possess, use, or enjoy property including the right to dispose of it by contract, would not be a proper means of regulating commerce under the Necessary and Proper Clause. Now, before considering what constitutes such an infringement, let me now turn to how the Constitution protects economic liberty from infringement by the states. After the Civil War, Republicans in Congress struggled to protect the newly freed slaves from the black codes that southern states had adopted to reestablish white domination. In 1866, Congress enacted the first Civil Rights Act. The act man this act mandated that all citizens of the United States, quote, shall have the same right to make and enforce contracts, to sue, be parties, and give evidence, to inherit, purchase, lease, sell, hold, and convey real and personal property, and to full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings for the security of person and property as is enjoyed by white citizens. So Congress identified the civil rights of all persons, whether white or black, to include the rights to make and enforce contracts, to inherit, purchase, lease, sell, hold, and convey real and personal property. In other words, at the very core of civil rights in 1866 was the economic liberty defined by the rights of contract and property. Although, once again, it is anachronistic to impose this distinction between economic and personal rights on that period. 
But where in the Constitution did Congress find the power to enact the Civil Rights Act of 1866 to protect the economic rights of contracted property against infringements by the states? It was the 13th Amendment, the first section of which prohibits slavery or involuntary servitude except as punishment for crime, and the second section of which gives Congress an enumerated power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Now, to appreciate how the 13th Amendment justified the Civil Rights Act, we must remember that slavery was, first and foremost, an economic system that was designed to deprive slaves of their economic liberty. The key to slavery was labor. The fundamental divide between the slave power and abolitionists concerned the ownership of this labor. Could a person be owned as property and be denied the right to refrain from laboring except on terms contractually agreed upon? Or did every person own him or herself with the inherent right to enter into contracts by which they could acquire property in return? Republican adherents of free labor held the second of these views. Therefore, by abolishing slavery, Republicans in Congress maintained that the 13th Amendment ipso facto empowered them to protect the economic liberties that slavery had so for, for so long denied. In particular, the right to make and enforce contracts, to inherit, purchase, lease, sell, hold, and convey real and personal property. Defending the Civil Rights Act in Congress, Michigan Senator Jacob Howard noted that, slave, that a slave, quote, owned no property because the law prohibited him. He could not take real or personal estate, either by sale or grant, or by descent or inheritance. He did not own the bread he earned and ate. Howard then observed, quote, now, sir, it is not denied that this relation of servitude between the former Negro slave and his master was actually severed by this amendment, the 13th Amendment. But the absurd construction now enforced upon it leaves him, meaning the freedman, without family, without property, without the implements of husbandry, and even without the right to acquire or use any instrumentalities of carrying on the industry of which he may be capable. In sum, by abolishing the economic system of slavery, Republicans maintained that the 13th Amendment empowered Congress to protect the economic system of free labor and the underlying rights of property and contract that defines that system. To the dismay of congressional Republicans, President Andrew Johnson vetoed the Civil Rights Act, in part on the ground that it exceeded Congress's power under the 13th Amendment, or so he claimed. In response to Johnson's states' rights argument, supermajorities in both the House and Senate overrode that veto. But some in Congress, such as Ohio Representative John Bingham, actually shared Johnson's constitutional concerns. And many in Congress were also concerned that when the Southern Democrats would resume their seats, they would repeal the Civil Rights Act, as they were loudly promising to do. These Republicans thought a constitutional rather than a statutory constraint was needed. So pursuing a parallel track, Bingham worked with the Committee on Reconstruction to devise the 14th Amendment to constitutionalize the rights protected by the Civil Rights Act and more. Bingham drafted the Privileges or Immunities Clause, which reads, no state shall make or enforce any law abridging the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. As with the Ninth Amendment, the Privileges or Immunities Clause raises an obvious question. Just what are the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States? This question was answered 
by the Senate sponsor of the 14th Amendment, Senator Michigan, Michigan Senator Jacob Howard again, in a widely publicized floor speech, so widely publicized that the 14th Amendment came to be called Howard's Amendment in some of the press accounts. In his speech, Howard explained that the substance of these privileges or immunities were the same as those rights protected by the Privileges and Immunities Clause of Article 4, which states that, quote, the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. Howard explained that under Article 4, quote, citizens of the United States are, by constitutional right, entitled to these privileges and immunities and may assert this right and these privileges and immunities and ask for their enforcement wherever they go within the limits of the several states of the Union. Now, Article 4 was limited to protecting U.S. citizens from being discriminated against with respect to these rights when sojourning in another state. So when you went from one state to another state, the state you go into if you're a U.S. citizen can't discriminate against you on the basis of, with respect to these rights. That's all it did. But the question then is, what were the rights that states could not discriminate against out-of-staters with respect to? Um, what rights were being protected from discrimination? That's what Howard is referring to, the substance of the rights. Howard anticipated how courts would interpret these rights by quoting from a lengthy passage of the case known as Corfield versus Coriel, an 1823 Circuit Court opinion interpreting Article 4 that was written by Justice Bushrod Washington, who was George Washington's nephew. This is a case, by the way, that virtually all Republicans who are arguing about the Privilege of Unities Clause not only cited, but read whole passages from into the, into the congressional record. At the core of Justice Washington's description of privileges or immunities is this passage. What these fundamental principles are, it would perhaps be more tedious than difficult to enumerate. They may, however, be all comprehended under the following general heads protection by the government, the enjoyment of life and liberty with the right to acquire and possess property of every kind and to pursue and obtain happiness and safety, subject nevertheless to such restraints as the government may justly pres prescribe for the general good of the whole. Now, the reason I read you all of those state constitutional protections of the, of the natural rights and how they define natural rights at the beginning of this speech is so that when I read you this quote, you would recognize that the language at the core of Corfield is the very same language that was drafted, originally drafted by George Mason, incorporated into state constitutions, used to abolish slavery in Massachusetts, and included in Roger Sherman's uh, draft amendment that protects the natural rights retained by the people, which was the precursor of the Ninth Amendment. Senator Howard continued after, citing, after quoting, not just citing, but quoting Corfield, quote, to these privileges and immunities, whatever they may be, for they, can't, they are not and cannot be fully defined in their entire extent and precise nature, to these should be added the personal rights guaranteed and secured by the first eight amendments of the Constitution. This is what we today call incorporation. It was really anachronistic to call it incorporation. These are fundamental rights were these included the rights that were in the first eight amendments, and Howard then proceeded to specify list the enumerated individual rights guarantees that are in the first eight amendments before offering the following summary, quote, here is a mass of privileges, immunities, and rights, some of them secured by the second section of the fourth article 
of the Constitution, that's the Privileges and Immunities Clause, which I have recited and some by the first eight amendments of the Constitution. He then explained that the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment was needed because, quote, there is no power given in the Constitution to enforce and carry out any of these guarantees from state infringement. And then, quote, the great object of the first section of this amendment is therefore to restrain the power of the states and compel them at all times to respect these great fundamental guarantees. In his notes for his speech, his handwritten notes, which we have, Howard referred to these privileges or immunities as the, quote, fundamental civil rights of citizens, unquote. As we've already seen, the Civil Rights Act of 1866 protected the rights of citizens to make and enforce contracts to inherit, purchase, lease, sell, hold, and convey real and personal property. These economic liberties of contract and property were, therefore, among the unenumerated privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, their civil rights, that neither Congress nor the several states may infringe. Okay. Having identified the clauses that protect economic liberty, let me now turn to the separate question of how the Constitution protects these liberties. To understand this, we must set aside the modern conception of constitutional rights, in which rights are viewed as trumps that can never be touched by legislation. On the modern view, if one has a right, then legislatures can do nothing whatsoever to restrict its exercise. But this was not the conception of constitutional rights held by the founders or by the generations uh, who drafted and ratified the 14th Amendment. For them, economic liberty, like all liberty, may be reasonably regulated to achieve a purpose within the competency of government. But the requirement that such regulations be reasonable imposes a limit on the legislative power. As Justice Joseph Bradley explained in his dissenting opinion in the Slaughterhouse Cases, the Supreme Court decision that gutted the Privileges or Immunities Clause from the 14th Amendment, quote, the right of a state to regulate the conduct of its citizens is undoubtedly a very broad and extensive one, not to be lightly restricted. But there are certain fundamental rights which this right of regulation cannot infringe. It may prescribe the manner of their exercise, but it cannot subvert the rights themselves. It's an important distinction. Regulating the manner by which you exercise your rights, on the one hand, or subverting the rights, on the other hand. Now, the same is true, of course, for the enumerated rights protected by, for example, the First Amendment. The fact that the Constitution recognizes the liberties of speech, press, and assembly does not entail that these liberties may never be reasonably regulated. To the contrary, the courts routinely uphold time, place, and manner regulations of speech. Notice the term manner. On the other hand, courts must be on the lookout for unreasonable or arbitrary regulations that are designed to make the exercise of these liberties more costly or to stigmatize and deter their exercise because they're disapproved of by the majority. It is the province of the judiciary to smoke out such illicit motives. As Chief Justice John Marshall wrote in McCulloch versus Maryland, quote, and this is very important language, not typically remembered that Marshall said it in McCulloch, but I'm going to read it anyway. Quote, should Congress, under the pretext 
of executing its powers. Pass laws for the accomplishments of objects, meaning purposes or ends, not entrusted to the government. It would become the painful duty of this tribunal to say that such an act was not the law of the land. This brings us to the due process of law clauses in the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment, both of which stipulate that no person may be deprived of life and liberty, life, liberty, or property without due process of law. In some states, these are called law of the land clauses because the due process clause, the, due, the language of due process came out of Magna Carta's language of law and the land, and they are more or less treated synonymously um, as either law of the land or due process. So you notice Marshall speaks of law of the land. I'm now going to talk about the due process of law in the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments. The due process of law clauses constitutionally guarantee a judicial process before anyone can be deprived of life, liberty, or property. This judicial process includes an assessment by an impartial judiciary that the law is being applied, that the law being applied to the individual is consistent with the Constitution. And I might add that originally a jury trial included the very same thing because juries had the power to decide not only matters of fact, but of matters of law, which includes justice and constitutionality. So to say you had a right to a jury trial was to say you had a right to a substantive, to substantively challenge a particular act of a legislature being applied to you. Now we've become accustomed to thinking of there being a, what we call a First Amendment challenge to a federal law or a state law or a Commerce Clause challenge to a federal law. But while the First Amendment and Commerce Clause may provide the substance of such challenges, it is the due process of law clause that ensures a process that includes an impartial judicial assessment of whether a congressional enactment is within its proper powers before any person can be deprived of life, liberty, or property. So the First Amendment combines with the due process of law to give you a judicial inquiry as to whether a statute has violated the First Amendment. The Commerce Clause combines with the due process of law to assure you a judicial inquiry to determine whether the law enacted by Congress is within its enumerated powers. Just as the Fifth Amendment's due process of law clause authorizes courts to ensure that Congress is not acting pretextually, to use John Marshall's phrase, in asserting its enumerated powers, so too does the Fourteenth Amendment's due process of law clause authorize federal and state court judges to critically assess whether a state law restricting the privileges or immunities of property or contract are good faith exercises of the state's police power to protect the health, safety, and public morals of the community. Or conversely, whether a state legislature's assertion of a health and safety rationale is a mere pretext, to use John Marshall's term again, to pursue some other end that is not entrusted to state legislatures, like that of enriching themselves or some favored faction or special interest group. That's not a legitimate exercise of the police power. I should stress that under current Supreme Court doctrine, all restrictions on liberty, including economic liberty, are supposed to be rationally related to a legitimate state interest. That's existing doctrine. But under existing doctrine, Congress and states cannot do whatever they want with respect to economic liberty. They can only do what's rationally related to a legitimate state interest. But since the 1955 case of Williamson v. Leoptical, a Warren Court decision, such rational basis scrutiny is satisfied if a judge can imagine any conceivable reason for the restriction. 
Such conceivable basis review is a denial of the due process of law, which requires a meaningful or realistic assessment of whether our legislative act is within its legislative power before any person can be deprived of their life, liberty, or property. Of course, there is much more to say about how such about how such judicial inquiries are to be conducted so as to protect the rights, privileges, and immunities of the people without impeding the ability of legislators to reasonably regulate and protect the health and safety and public morals of the people and without creating a government by judiciary. But at this point, I'm afraid my time for the formal remarks is up. So let me conclude with this. By effectively eliminating the Ninth Amendment and the Privileges or Immunities Clause from the Constitution, and then by adopting a conceivable basis review of any liberty that the justices do not deem to be fundamental in violation of the due process of law clauses, the Supreme Court has undermined the rights of all Americans to make and enforce contracts and to inherit, purchase, lease, sell, hold, and convey real and personal property, the rights that both define and protect our economic liberty. But where there is a will to protect these liberties, there is a way that is both practical and grounded in the original meaning of the Constitution. Thank you. mics around and if you would just state your name and uh, institutional affiliation if any and then uh, do try to uh, make it a question and not uh, 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 too much editorial this gentleman here behind you my name is Andy Hawks I'm a local attorney uh, Professor Barnett my question is about the implications of the rage case for economic liberty as I understand, Rach, uh, Congress has the power to criminalize local marijuana use in support of a national regulatory regime. But is the reverse true? By that I mean, is Rach now precedent for saying that Congress can legalize local marijuana use in support of a national legal regime that legalizes marijuana for interstate commerce? Huh. Well, that's a wonderful question, uh, which I've never thought of before. Um, which you should have given me a heads up before the talk, I think, or if I could think about it. Anyway, so for those of you who don't know, I am the lawyer who represented Angel Rach um, all the way from the trial court, all the way up through the Supreme Court, argued the, the Rach case in the Supreme Court, and then on remand to the Ninth, through the Ninth Circuit, then to the Supreme Court, then back on remand, where we had a due process clause challenge that we lost there. Um, and as you know, um, we made a we brought a Commerce Clause challenge, arguing that Congress had exceeded its powers under the Commerce Power to reach locally homegrown marijuana that was grown without any sort of interstate uh, materials whatsoever. And Congress did hold, as the questioner correctly says, I mean Congress, the court, the Supreme Court did hold, as the questioner correctly says, that Congress may reach even local activity if doing so is essential to its regulation of a broader economic activity. Um, so then the question is whether the question that now arises is does it cut the other way and does the Congress not only have the power to prohibit but to authorize it or legalize it? Um, again, I haven't thought about this uh, completely, uh, but it seems to me that if Congress is regulating interstate commerce and it decides that interstate commerce needs to be protected by keeping it open, which in fact is the original purpose of the Interstate Commerce Clause, is free trade. The original purpose of the Interstate Commerce Clause was not to ban trade or prohibit trade. 
but it was to keep it open against barriers that would be erected by states, uh, protectionist barriers erected by states to protect their own industries at the expense of industries of sister states. The commerce power was there to take that power away from states, give it to the federal government so they could open up free trade. It would seem to me that if Congress, in fact, makes the policy choice to say that there needs to be a free trade in marijuana, medical or otherwise, medical or recreational, then as a means of, of ensuring that that free trade goes to all the way, uh, across, not only from cross-state lines, but all the way to the consumer and the purchaser, that that would be an essential part of opening up free trade and, in fact, would be a part of free trade. Um, so I guess, conversely, um, the only thing that maybe the states could ban is wholly, not, maybe not under rage, but under perhaps a better reading of the commerce power than we got in rage, the only thing states would have the power to ban would be wholly intrastate marijuana that had no contact whatsoever with the interstate market. But inter- interstate mar- marijuana, that's something they couldn't ban. Uh, and so that would be something that would be fully protectable, I would think, under the commerce power without even having to use rage um, as a justification for it. You'd have to use rage to get the wholly intrastate marijuana. Uh, but, but I think if you had an interstate market in marijuana, you wouldn't need to reach wholly interstate marijuana. Does that answer the question? This gentleman here. You know, I'm a law professor. I'm used to asking these questions, not answering them. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask you about the uh, due process clause. Uh, you had mentioned the law of the land clause or the due process clause, uh, due process of law part that required a judicial hearing of some kind to evaluate before these rights could be taken. But the rights that could be taken, the rights to life, liberty, and property, to me, that triplet sounds a lot like uh, George Mason's canonical formulation of rights or that it got incorporated in the Declaration of Independence. And to me, especially the word liberty there, has got to mean more than just lack of imprisonment. And that when the preamble of the Constitution says to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our prosperity, that doesn't sound to me like lack of imprisonment. And if it's more than just lack of imprisonment there, can it not incorporate these economic rights that cannot be then taken prior to going through this judicial process? Well, I've already explained how it can be, but I think that may not be the textually the best way of what you've just said. It may not be the textually the best way of reading the clause. Um, it may be better to read the clause, uh, life, liberty, and property, that no person may depri- be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due set process of law as describing the legal consequences of violating a law so that you can be put to death, life, capital punishment, put into jail, liberty, uh, deprived of your liberty, or fined, or have a judgment against you in a common law court, which would deprive you of property if you violate a law. And so life, liberty, or property in the due process of law clause is basically regulating legal punishments, legal consequences for violating a law. The way you protect, the way economic liberty becomes uh, implicated here is if the law that you're accused of violating is a restriction of your background right to liberty, which in this case would include the right to property and contract. Um, And then the law, when it's being enforced against you, says, okay, you violated this law. We are now going to put you in jail or going to fine you. This is what happened to, example, for example, to Joseph Lochner. In the Lochner case, he was jailed for failing to pay a fine that was brought against him for employing a, somebody for longer than the 60-hour max, maximum that the Bake Shop Act in New York had, had required. Um, and so ultimately, 
when a law regulating economic liberty is enforced, it will then be it will then threaten to deprive somebody of their life, liberty, or property, and it's then that you're entitled to the due process of law before those legal consequences kick in. Rather than as what what the courts ultimately did do, um, at, at relatively soon after the after the Fourteenth Amendment, reading the the word liberty in life, liberty, or property as the substantive protection of, for example, economic and other liberties. So in other words, they applied the liberty there to the law itself rather than to the consequences of violating a law. And I think that may not be the best way of reading the clauses. This gentleman here. Thank you. Uh, Carl Golovin, domain reference and idea lives on.net. Uh, sir, you mentioned Roger Sherman. And uh, of course, economic activity is uh, can't be separated from monetary issues. Money is yeah, the crucial element to all economic activity. Roger Sherman, 1752, wrote a paper. I wonder if you're familiar with it. A, a caveat against injustice or an inquiry into the evils of a fluctuating medium of, medium of exchange. Uh, he's the one responsible for putting the words in the Constitution, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts, uh, scripturally an you know, honest unit of account being necessary and essential to honest commerce. And... Uh, as a, also as a reference, Andrew Jackson's farewell address on monetary and banking issues. So how have we gotten to the point where we we have a central bank, which is not constitutional, and a monetary unit, which is an inflating, depreciating IOU, and it actually threatens the concept of possessing property because although the numerical value of our property may increase, the inflation of the money supply may make it such that our sources of income can't even allow us to keep paying the taxes on the property that we have acquired. So uh, constitutionality of the current system. Uh, well, I can't address the constitutionality of the whole current system, but I can tell you that the foundation or the beginning of this constitutionality is it was held by the Supreme Court in what's known as the legal tender cases, uh, which are cases that were decided um, after the Civil War. And what's interesting about the legal tender cases is that initially the original legal tender cases invalidated uh, uh, the, uh, the, the ability of the federal government to require that their notes be taken as legal tender. And so let me just say a word about that. Um, there's no real prohibition on, constitu- on, on, the, on the federal government issuing paper notes um, in return for gold or anything else. What's at issue is whether they can make those notes a legal tender. That is, require people to accept those notes in their contracts, even if at the time their contracts specified gold or silver. But nevertheless, because of a legal tender law, people were forced to take paper money in, except instead of gold and silver because of a law. So the constitutionality of legal tender is what was at issue in the legal tender cases. And originally, the Supreme Court found it unconstitutional because it was beyond Congress's enumerated powers to declare that its paper notes were legal tender. Uh, and then what happened was an interesting kind of a court packing ish type thing that happened. Uh, there were some vac- there was at least one vacancy on the court, or the court's number had been allowed to go down to prevent Andrew Johnson from appointing any. Andrew Johnson was not beloved by Republicans in Congress. They had let the number of Supreme Court justices go down so that he wouldn't be able to put any Supreme Court justices on. And then, a, and so then Republicans increased the number back because now uh, Ulysses S. Grant is president. They increased the number back up to uh, nine, I think it was at this point. 
um, although at one point it got to 10, and I'm not sure if right there was when it happened. At any rate, they inter- increased the number, and then one of the justices who had decided, who had voted that it was unconstitutional, uh, retired because of illness. So that gave Grant the opportunity to appoint two justices. And the two justices he appointed, he appointed knowing full well they were on record in favor of the constitutionality of legal tender laws. He then appointed those justices. That flipped the majority from, I think it was like a four to three majority that it was unconstitutional to a five to four majority that it was constitutional. And then those justices sort of through various machinations got another case to come up to the court. And within two years, they heard the case again and upheld it as constitutional. So what was the basis on which they held legal tender laws unconstitutional? It was the most capacious reading of the necessary and proper clause that we've ever had in the history of the Supreme Court, other than perhaps Prigg versus Pennsylvania, which used the the necessary and proper clause to argue um, why state personal freedom laws were unconstitutional in conflict um, with the run uh, with the fugitive um, uh, slave acts of uh, eighteen of seventeen ninety and eighteen uh, fifty. At any rate, uh, that was the previous broad using of the necessary and proper clause to uphold the fugitive slave acts, and this was at least as broad, if not broader. In fact, we haven't really seen as broad an re- interpretation of the necessary and proper clause to justify paper money, um, even since the New Deal. Even the court's current reading of the necessary and proper clause is not as broad as the reading it took in that case in order to uphold paper money. So uh, legal tender laws, not paper money, but legal tender laws. And so I would say that the source of the problem starts with that case. You should go back. Everybody who's interested in the subject should go back and read those cases. Mike. Uh, thank you. Michael Maybach with the James Wilson Institute. The professor, excellent comments. Thank you. Uh, we have a real time case in the city of New York, the mayor has announced that the taxpayers apparently will pay for the health benefits, uh, hospitals, etc., of any citizens in New York, or at least the city of New York, even if they're here illegally and not citizens. So that's sort of taking a property without representation. Would you have any comments on that, or is that too fresh for Comment. I, I don't know enough about the details. Yeah. Um, and the problem with opining on constitutional issues without knowing the specifics of the proposal and having had time to think about it uh, okay. uh, is a great one. So I, okay. I refrain from doing that. Fair. Thank you. This gentleman here. I think we left too many, too much time for questions here. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I, I'm Bob Carlstrom. Uh, could you comment on, on civil and criminal asset forfeiture where there's a presumption that the property is the fruit of the poisonous tree and, and disposed of before actual due process is uh, addressed. Right. Well, this this seems to me, I mean, this is not something I've, I've, I've written about, so it's not something I have a fully worked out opinion, but I, this is the kind of thing that I would think is an easy violation of the due process of law clauses, which we should, by the way, call the due process of law clauses, not the due process clauses. It's typically, they're typically labeled the due process clause, big, a bit of a digression. Uh, uh, typically labeled the due process clauses. That's what law professors call them. That's what the courts call them. But it's not. An, but that invites a misinterpretation of the clauses that a lot of conservatives make, and that is to say that the due process of law uh, is satisfied when a legislature passes a law by the requisite majority and it's signed into law by the governor or by the president or overridden, uh, visit vetoes overridden. That is, they say, the due process of legislation, so to speak, and it has nothing to do with the substance of the law. 
But the whole clause says that people should not be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, which means it must be a valid law. That's why a law that exceeds the Congress's commerce power is unconstitutional because it's depriving somebody of life, liberty, or property without due process of a valid law. And the same thing would be a law that transgresses the First Amendment's freedom of speech. That also would not be a valid law. So you must be deprived of a due process of, of, of your life, liberty, and property by a valid law. And the due process of law requires a judicial inquiry, as, George, as John Marshall said, into whether the law, a, a legislative act, is a valid law or not. Um, and so that's a mis- so the whole idea of substantive due process that this is some kind of a contradiction in terms. First of all, the term substantive due process is a bad term. It was made up by people who criticized the Supreme Court. It was not a d- doctrine that the Supreme Court itself ever acknowledged until recently. Um, it's not a contradiction to say that the judicial process must include an opportunity to challenge a law as beyond the powers of the legislature to enact, and then it would not actually be a law. And in the case of civil asset forfeitures. It seems that people are being deprived of their property uh, without a due process, without the due process of law, which includes not only the opportunity to show that a law is outside the power of the legislature, but that you, are, the individual to whom this law is being applied, is actually guilty of a particular offense. That is the core of the due process of law, which is to ensure that the right people are being are being convicted or being found liable, um, and the idea that the burden should be on the individual. To uh, um, uh, to prove their innocence, so to speak, before they can get their property back, to me is just repugnant uh, and, and a, a clear violation of the due process of law. Is there anybody over here? Because I can't see them. Okay. No, they're over there, but they're they're keeping okay. to themselves. They're they're just watching with with rapt uh, alertness here. Oh no, no, we we got we got somebody. You 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 did. You provoked him to raise. Him. Uh, Steve Hinton, Tax Foundation. We're supposed to be a nation of laws, uh, not governed by men with arbitrary rulings. But when we have regulations and uh, uh, limits uh, on on the protection that say uh, for the social good or for a broader good, uh, where do we we stop? Because you can have a socialist saying, well, I think inequality is so bad for society that we should seize the property of this group and give it to that group without limit. How can you stop that? Right. Well, this may be the best or most difficult question of anybody that's anybody's asked me uh, today, because uh, in my talk, what I said was, um, is that uh, we shouldn't view rights as trumps. We shouldn't view the identification of a constitutional right, meaning Congre- Congress or the states can't do anything with respect to it at all. They may reasonably regulate it, provided that the reason for which they're regulating it is within their competence and with it's easy to say what's within the competence of the federal government because there's a list of powers that the federal government has. So if they're legitimately exercising their commerce power properly construed, then it's a proper end. And as long as this is a, a good faith or reasonable exercise of that power, uh, then it's constitutional. Um, but the, where, where the question arises, and I think it's the basis of your question, is what happens with states? which may or may not have enumerated powers in their constitutions. And, in fact, the 14th Amendment restricts the powers of states to abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, even if their constitutions say it's okay. The 14th Amendment trumps state constitutions as well as state laws. So what does it mean to say that a state state legislature is exercising its proper powers? Well, rather than have an elaborate – a need for an elaborate theory of rights – 
you don't really need an elaborate theory of rights as long as you understand that all liberty may be rightfully regulated. And as long as you're not violating the liberty rights of others, you're not actually uh, committing a wrong like murder, rape, armed robbery, what I used to prosecute when I was a prosecutor, then you're acting rightfully. And then that liberty can be reasonably regulated. You don't need an elaborate theory of that. What you need is a theory of the police power. You need a confined, constrained, limited theory of what the power of legislatures really are. That is something that I'm uh, that I present in a forthcoming article in the William and Mary Law Review article uh, called "No Arbitrary Power: An Originalist Theory of the Due Process of Law." Because in order to make out a due process of law challenge uh, or to see what the limits of state legislative power is, there needs to be a worked-out theory of the police power. And I can just I can't do that now. Now I am nearly out of time. And I can't do that here. But let me just say that the traditional heading of a police power was the protection of health, safety, and morals, public morals, health, safety, and public morals. And what all of those um, uh, headings were attempting to do, and I think generally speaking we're doing pretty well, is to identify areas where the exercise of some people's rights are going to actually invade and threaten and jeopardize the rights of others. So that's what, the co- that's what government's first duty is, to protect the right. You enter into civil society with others to get protection of your rights better than you can get in the state of nature. And that's what the legislative power is about, protecting your rights from being violated by others or from other people engaging in risky behavior that threaten to violate your rights. And that's where regulation comes in, not in punishing someone after the fact once your rights have been violated, but in reasonably regulating them to prevent them from violating your rights in the first instance. As long as that's what we're as long as that's what we're worrying about and not just a power to do good, a power to do justice, a power to do whatever may come into the heads of ambitious legislators. As well, what we're talking about are headings like health, safety, um, and I, I could say a little more about public morals in a moment. Um, then we're doing. Then government is doing what it's supposed to be doing, and as long as that's what legislators are doing in good faith, then what they're doing is constitutional. Uh, the term public morals. Um, is a bit more contentious. Uh, again, this would take a little longer to go into than I can go into here. Uh, but at least at the very core of what the regulation of public morals was about was the regulation of public spaces. That is streets, sidewalks, parks. Governments are charged with regulating streets, sidewalks, parks, any place where the public is. And the public has a right to be there, including people, you know, uh, parents with their children have a right to use these areas. And therefore, Behavior in those spaces can be reasonably regulated also to ensure access by the general public, and that would go to regulating what we would now think of as moral conduct in the public spaces. Whether the police power extends also to private activities behind closed doors that no one's aware of, uh, that is a much more contentious claim, and I think not justified on the basis of historical evidence, but that is the only part of the public morals prong of the police power that's really controversial. Whether, whether the police power includes the power to regulate morality that's not taking place in public and it's outside of public view, and whether the legislature is competent to reach that activity. I think it's not, but that's something about which good people can disagree with uh, in good faith. Right. Yes, ma'am. This will be the last question, I think. Hi, I'm Elena. I'm an intern here at Heritage. Um, so when you talk about uh, regulating the manner in which a right is exercised um, but not touching the right itself, um, my question is, as conservatives, how can we honor the intent of this principle while also protecting the line between rightfully and reasonably regulated and those that would wish to blur it? And those would what? Those that would wish to blur the line. Blur the line. 
Well, there's always going to be people who want to blur the line. That's inevitable. It's always been the case. It always will be the case. And the only thing we can do is push back, I think, using a kind of criterion I just answered. It was the previous question. So in some respects, my answer to the previous question anticipates your question. You have to develop a theory of what the appropriate scope of legislative power is, and then you have to stick to that. Um, and I think libertarians and conservatives have that theory. The founders had that theory. The, founder, the framers uh, and ratifiers of the 14th Amendment had such a theory. It was general. It was not completely specified in all its particulars. And in fact, it could not be uh, because what government is necessary to protect us from, the evils that are the harms that government is necessary to protect us from, are going to evolve along with technology and other sorts of risks. So it's impossible, just as it's impossible to specify in advance all the rights, all the natural liberties that we have, because it's impossible to specify all the things we would want to do with our liberty, it's also impossible to specify in advance all the things that government uh, may pr justly do in order to protect us from other people's exercising their liberties in a way that does damage to us. Um, and so, but what we do need is to think seriously about the fact. I guess one last thing I'll close with, and this is actually, again, in response to the previous gentleman's question, and that is that you have to make a threshold decision whether the legislature has unlimited power or limited power. And I think in the case of the U.S. Constitution and Congress, most people agree, or at least most people who are originalists agree, uh, that the, con the Congress has limited and enumerated powers. What they disagree about is whether the state's powers are similarly limited. And I think it's clear, as I think my, uh, my co-author Evan Burnick and I show in our most recent article um, and else, elsewhere in my scholarship, that it has always been assumed that the legislature, uh, even a legislature of general powers, has limited powers. They're limited to the powers that it would be rational for a people to alienate and, get, and surrender up to the general government, which was the way Locke put it. Uh, it's only rational to enter into civil society, be made better off, and you're not going to be made better off if you surrender to a legislature with omnipotence and powers to destroy the very thing, property rights that you entered into civil society better to protect. And so, again, getting back to the theme of this lecture, economic liberties of contract and property, those are the core rights, among others, that we enter into civil society to get protection of. And that those rights, therefore, provide a limitation on what any legislature, whether one of general or enumerated powers, can justly violate. Thanks. Thank you very much. This concludes our event today. Our next event is uh, January 25th in this auditorium at 11 o'clock. Thanks again.